thankful for the way the music uh, led us right into uh, the passage we'll be looking at today and actually next time we're in Matthew, that uh, our hope and our prayer is that none of us stray away from the chief shepherd. Uh, If you would, uh, grab a copy of God's Word and let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 823. I've mentioned this before, uh, but Matthew's gospel is known to revolve around five blocks of extended teaching uh, where Jesus explains the kingdom of heaven. Block one was the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus explains the fulfillment of the kingdom. All that was anticipated by the law and the prophets comes to fruition in Jesus and the people who are shaped by his reign. Block two was chapter 10. Uh, Expect opposition for preaching the kingdom. Not everyone will welcome uh, Jesus' reign. Many will oppose it by, by persecuting his messengers. Nevertheless, he says, do not fear. Jesus is greater. And then there were the parables in chapter 13. And those parables helped us understand the nature of the kingdom. Instead of this immediate political takeover, the kingdom advances more like the slow growth of a mustard seed or or the way leaven works through flour. From the outside, it it seems shot through with evil and that our efforts are, are thwarted But in the end, Jesus' kingdom will prevail. I just realized I didn't get you guys my manuscript, but if you could go ahead and get, there we go, uh, get those up there. But yeah, so there's the, the five discourses. Today, we are starting the fourth The fourth discourse, uh, the fourth block of extended teaching in Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus explains the communal life of those within his kingdom. Uh, Many of you won't be surprised by that. We often appeal to Matthew 18 um, in discussions about the church, um, especially our mutual concern for one another in the process of corrective discipline. And we'll look at that more closely next time. Today is the backdrop for that mutual concern. Uh, The first part of Matthew 18 clarifies why, why any of us would, would take responsibility for each other. But more than that, Matthew 18 paints a beautiful portrait of the communal life marked by Jesus' reign. If you asked what characterizes the community belonging to Jesus... Jesus outlines several important aspects in Matthew 18. Things like humility, a high regard for one another, a hatred for sin and its damaging effects, an embodiment of God's special care for his own, 
the presence of Jesus guiding the church, uh, and also forgiveness. So we won't cover all those today, but, but let's, let's read verses 1 to 14 and take a look at the first few. He says, at that, it says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray... Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. We'll stop there. So what characterizes the community belonging to Jesus' kingdom? Or or we could phrase it this way, uh, what characterizes the church when we submit to Jesus' rule? I ask it that way because Jesus already anticipated building his church in chapter 16, verse 18, where he says, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And then he'll mention the church again in chapter 18, verse 17. And there, it's in the context of this identifiable uh, assembly that are all, all the people in that assembly are committed to one another beneath the rule of Jesus. And that's the community anticipated in Jesus' teaching here. So what characterizes that community? What what should characterize us, the church? Well, in verses 1 to 14, at least four characteristics stand out. First, those who belong to Jesus' kingdom humble themselves like children. They humble themselves like children. Look at verse 1. 
At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Does it surprise you that the disciples asked this when they did? Three times Jesus has shown them how he must go to Jerusalem and die. Three times he has taught them about his own path of humility. And yet they want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They want to know their own status. They haven't gotten yet. They haven't gotten it yet, have they? And Jesus points this out with, with an enacted parable of sorts. In verse 2, Jesus calls to him a child. And it's the same word used when Jesus called to himself the disciples. He calls this child to him. He, he puts the child in the midst of them and he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Did you know, did you notice where where Jesus starts here? The disciples want to know how they will rank in the kingdom. And Jesus basically says, with that attitude, let's not start with the assumption that you're in the kingdom. He says, unless you turn, you, his disciples, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So you disciples, you need to experience an inward change. Uh, The New American Standard translates this, unless you are converted. The disciples need a new moral outlook on on what Jesus' kingdom is about. It's not about who ranks the highest. And then he then illustrates that with a child. And it's clear from Mark's gospel that this child was small enough that Jesus can pick him up and set him in his lap. Now, we need to be careful here. It's, it's possible to read all sorts of things into Jesus' use of this child. Well, it must be the child's innocence, you know, some, some will say. Or it must be the boy's helplessness, others will say. But I think the context here provides a few clues uh, that point us in a better direction. And one is to note how the disciples are concerned with rank. So, who is the greatest, they say? Now, everywhere this question appears in the Gospels, uh, Jesus responds with a point about choosing the lower position. So Mark 9, chapter 35, Jesus also using a child there to, to illustrate. Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all. So little, little children didn't have power or rank in society. And that seems to be what Jesus is hinting at here, the the lowliness of this child. Another clue is the verb Jesus Jesus uses in verse 4. Whoever 
humbles himself like this child, okay? And the point isn't that children are inherently humble in attitude. I hear the parents laughing about that. But I think what he's saying here is is, it's, it's not talking about children being inherently humble, but that putting oneself in a position like this child takes humility, Okay, it's the same verb that appears in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, where it says, being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So it's in that same context where, where Jesus is not clinging to, to his status, he chooses the lower position. Also the phrase, little ones. In verse 6, little seems to indicate those who, for Jesus' sake, take a position that looks weak and insignificant to the world. And I think maybe the broadest clue comes from Jesus' own sonship throughout Matthew's gospel. Repeatedly, Jesus willingly takes the lower position in submission to his Father's will. So in the end, I think the focus here is the child's lowly position. He's not on top. right? He's, he's one in submission to others. Trustful reliance may also be a part of the picture. Um, that's what the little ones do. In verse 6, you can look there. It says, the, the little ones who believe in me. Right? Or you could also translate that, who trust in Jesus. So that might be part of the picture here. But wherever the trustful reliance is present, it will produce a willingness in Jesus' disciple to choose the lower place in submission to the Father's will. So maybe maybe we should call it a a trustful obedience that, for Jesus' sake, chooses the path of lowliness. And doesn't that fit the pattern we see elsewhere in Scripture? Uh, You know, I was thinking about Psalm 8, verse 2, when God silences these mighty enemies by establishing praise in the mouth of infants, in the mouth of little children. Or 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Jesus' disciples must be willing to walk that path of humility. So what about you? Do you find yourself concerned with status? Are you disappointed when other people don't recognize your particular gifts? Or when they don't put you forward or assign to you that title? You know, is there ever a sense of entitlement like... Well, I deserve this more than he does. Such attitudes run contrary to the humility Jesus calls us to in his kingdom. We must turn from those ways. Entering the kingdom requires humility. And then then once you're in the kingdom, that, that doesn't go away, does it? Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So continuing in the kingdom requires humility as well. And this is subversive to the world's way of thinking. The, the, the church, by living in this kind of humility, is subversive to how the world often views things, right? The world says, shoot for the stars. Be anything you want. 
The world yearns for popularity. It values fame and power and wealth and status. The culture says, assert yourself, rise up, take control by any means necessary. But Jesus measures greatness by those who choose the path of humility. It's in, the, it's in that path that we show the world what he did for us. Right? Jesus is rich. He became poor for our sake. Jesus is God, but he took the form of a servant. Jesus is first, but he becomes last of all. Jesus triumphs not by taking up arms, but by taking up a cross. So for those in the kingdom, there's really no other way. Kingdom people must reflect the humility of the king. Lowliness is the way. Trustful obedience and submission to our Father's will. This is the way. For the church to abandon humility is for the, is for the church to abandon Jesus. Pride is not welcome in Jesus' kingdom. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, James tells us. So pray for the Lord to make us humble. Pray for the Lord to keep us humble like children before Him. And then second, those who belong to Jesus' kingdom receive each other as they would Jesus. They receive each other as they would Jesus. Verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. One such child. One such child. That's the same as the one who humbled himself like this child in verse 4. So we're not dealing with little children literally, in other words, but disciples who've become like children. Okay, that, that may include some who are actual children, but the point is Jesus' disciples. We also know this from verse 6 when he talks about the little ones. He says, the little ones who believe in me. So that's what he has in mind. Those who believe in him. Those little ones. Receiving disciples of Jesus is in view. So Jesus made a similar point in chapter 10, verse 40 and 42. Uh, He says there, Whoever receives you receives me. He's talking to his disciples. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple... Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So notice in chapter 10, they receive them not because of who they are in themselves, but for the express purpose of who they represent. They are Jesus' disciples. Okay, the same happens in chapter 18, verse 5. Their reception occurs in Jesus' name. So the reception occurs because these disciples are representing Jesus, these little ones are representing Jesus. Isn't that an amazing honor? He just said that these disciples must humble themselves. They must choose the path of lowliness. But when they do choose that path, 
They become Jesus' emissaries. To receive them is to receive Jesus. What an incredible honor. And this fits what the New Testament develops elsewhere. Like when Jesus later, uh, so this is Matthew chapter 25, Jesus later commends people for feeding him when he was hungry or giving him drink when he's thirsty or clothing him when he was naked and, and the righteous then asked, Lord, when did we do all these things? And Jesus says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. It's Matthew 25, verse 40. Or, or when, when Paul is persecuting Christians in Acts chapter 9, right? And Jesus comes to him and stops him on the Damascus road and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He could have said, why are you persecuting the church? But he says, why are you persecuting me? Being a Christian means you are so united to Jesus that to persecute you is to persecute Jesus. And to receive you is to receive Jesus. That union with Jesus shapes how we should regard each other. In Jesus' kingdom, one class cannot despise the other. The rich can't despise the poor. And vice versa. The older can't spurn the younger, or, or vice versa. No race can look down on the other. The strong can't treat the weak like they're unimportant. Because we share the same allegiance to Jesus' name, we welcome one another as we would welcome Him. We hold each other with the same regard as He holds us. So is that how you regard the members of this church? Right? Jesus' kingdom is not yet fully on earth as it is in heaven. But each disciple is like an ambassador from heaven. Like how, how, would, how would you treat an ambassador from another country? How would you expect someone to treat an ambassador from your own country? Right? There are protocols for this, you know. The United States has an official 37-page document detailing all kinds of things, from introductions like Mr. or Madam Ambassador, how to welcome them, expectations for your phone calls and how you should talk, culturally appropriate gifts, entertaining them, and on and on it goes. We honor ambassadors of earthly rulers. How much more those who represent the King of Kings? Right? How much more those who've been entrusted with a message from heaven? Now, I don't mention that illustration to say you should all pamper one another, but only to point out a reality that that every little one in Jesus' kingdom is to be treated with this special regard because of who they represent, no matter how young you think they are, or no matter how feeble their faith, or no matter you know, their excess or their background, no matter their role in the church. 
We receive one another as we would Jesus. And that includes how we think about them, how we regard them, how we talk about them, how we serve them. In that light, Jesus also brings up something else that should characterize his people. Those who belong to Jesus' kingdom share a hatred for sin and its damaging effects. Share a hatred for sin and its damaging effects. Look at verses 6 and 7. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Uh, there's, a, there's a word that appears repeatedly here that links verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. Uh, it's harder to discern in the ESV, but it's, in, it's more apparent in the translations like the New American Standard Version when it Uh, It says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble or woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. Okay, the ESV has causes to sin or temptations to sin, but it's the same word. But the picture is a stumbling block, something you're, you're putting in the path of another that would, lead them, that would lead to their downfall. Okay, the same word appeared in chapter 5, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, this was in the context of uh, sexual immorality. If your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away. And he's basically saying that's, that's better than being thrown into hell. Uh, we find it again in chapter 13, verse 21. Where you got the you have the, the four soils and some of the seed, some of the seeds were sown on a rocky ground, a rocky soil, and Jesus later explains, uh, this is the one that hears the word, and he receives the word initially with, with joy, and he endures for a little while, but then tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, and immediately he falls away or stumbles away. That's not a Christian losing his reward. That's a person who once claimed to follow Jesus and no longer does. That kind of stumbling away. Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13, in the context where he's dealing with food, uh, meat offered to idols, Right, And you've got some Christians who are eating food sacrificed to idols and, and doing it in a way that was destroying the faith of their brother or sister. And Paul says, There, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. If food makes my brother stumble, 
I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. The stumbling in view there is a stumbling unto destruction. In other words, whether it's stumbling to fall away or a stumbling block that destroys somebody's faith, weighty and eternal things are at stake in our lives together. When Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, he wants you to recognize that sin is no joke. Your sin can have very damaging effects on others. Stumbling blocks of all kinds will will come in a fallen, broken world. That's to be expected. But don't be the cause of them. You're better off dead, Jesus says here, meaning you deserve a punishment worse than death if that's the way you're going to choose to live your life. I think we need to feel that kind of gravity when it comes to sin. You need to sense the weight of Jesus' warning here. He's warning disciples about their treatment of other disciples. And true disciples will all heed the warning. Okay? There are ways that your sin can damage the faith of others in the community, and you need to take that seriously. That's why our church covenant encourages us to these are the words from it, to seek God's help in abstaining from practices that bring unwarranted harm to the body or jeopardize our own or another's faith. Okay? Instead of putting stumbling blocks before others, we must be vigilant to rid ourselves of them altogether. That's, that's why Jesus continues with verse 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin... Or stumble, so the same word there, causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin or stumble, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So the stakes couldn't be higher when it comes to putting away sin. Okay, there's no way you can hear Jesus' words and walk away with slight thoughts about your sin. Now, there have been people in church history, uh, or Origen is most known for this, but There have been people who've taken Jesus' words literally here and they have mutilated their bodies. Only to find out that that hand or that eye wasn't the real source of the problem. Jesus' point lies elsewhere. The point is that we must take radical measures to deal with our sin. The Old Testament often used the hand or the foot or the eye to describe the state of our soul, right? So you get things like the works of our hands in the Old Testament often referred to the idols that we worship, that we create, that we depend upon, that we fear, 
the feet, right? The feet would, would turn to the, to the right or to the left instead of staying on the path of God's law as he revealed it. And the eye, that shaped the thought life, right? That's, that's why Jesus says in chapter 6 of Matthew, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And so when Jesus says to cut off a hand or foot, to gouge out an eye, he's calling us to this vigilant moral self-denial. Renounce everything in your life that would cause you or would cause someone else to stumble. John Stott puts it this way. He says, Jesus' point is not mutilation, but mortification. Which means to reject sinful practices so resolutely that we die to them or put them to death. If your eye causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your eyes, that is the objects you see, then pluck out your eyes. That is, don't look. Behave as if you had actually plucked out your eyes and flung them away and were now blind and so could not see the objects which previously caused you to sin. Again, if your hand or foot causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your hands, that is the things you do, or your feet, the places you visit, then cut them off. That is, don't do it. Don't go. Behave as if you had actually cut off your hands and feet and had flung them away and were now crippled and so could not do the things or visit the places which previously caused you to sin. Take radical measures in getting rid of sin in your life. Being aware that it can have damaging effects on the body. I think a lot of deception, a lot of when, when you're in sin, you can deceive yourself and think, well, this isn't doing anybody else any harm. And that's not true. Because where you start letting sin, start permitting sin in your own life, how will you be able to confront others in theirs? How can you call someone to holiness when you're not pursuing it yourself? And you don't. And gradually that seeps into the church, the life of the church, and ruins the church. A fourth characteristic of the community in Jesus' kingdom, and it'll be the last we consider today, we emulate God's care for His own. Emulate God's care for His own. Uh, We find this in verses 10 to 14. Verse 10 says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Again, who are the little ones? According to verse 6, it's those who believe in Jesus. So we must not despise any of Jesus' disciples. Why? He goes on. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels... Always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. They're angels. 
Some might understand that to show how each disciple has a guardian angel. But that wouldn't be saying enough, actually. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 says this about the angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Meaning, they ain't just one per disciple. Jesus has many who represent His disciples. What's stunning is that it's for the little ones. So the ones who seem little before others receive the greatest attention by God. They're represented before the face of God by the angels that He appoints to watch over them. That's how important they are. Then verse 12 adds to the picture. He says, what do you think? If if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. The shepherd searching for the sheep that wandered away is meant to portray what God the Father is like. He searches for us when we go astray. It's not that he doesn't know where we've gone any more than he didn't know where our first parents were when he said to Adam, where are you? He knows. But using these, these actions here of a, of a shepherd, he, he condescends to help us understand his relationship to us and how he relates to his sheep. He's not aloof and disinterested. Our Father desires to, to have us. He's concerned for us. He, he wants to keep us. He draws near to take us back to where we belong. Soon we will come to instructions about confronting fellow disciples when they sin. And if they refuse to listen, we, we take a few others. And if they refuse to listen to, those, to that group, then we bring it to the church. But all of that follows this picture of God the Father we find here. He doesn't want any of His little ones to perish. Our efforts to correct in the church are the outworking of God's concern for His own. We pursue each other's well-being in the church because this is the way our God pursues us. He is a good shepherd who searches for the one that went astray and then He rejoices when He finds you. So many times we encounter this imagery in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 34 is context where the 
The shepherds in Israel are not doing their job, and so God himself steps in. He judges the the wicked shepherds, but he says, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. Isaiah chapter 40. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Zechariah 9. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. Psalm 23. One precious to to many of you, the Lord is my shepherd. Shall not want. He leads me besides still waters. Of course, the true embodiment of this shepherd-like care for us is seen in Jesus, God incarnate. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So if there was ever a moment when God demonstrated his desire that none of his little ones perish, it was at the cross of Jesus Christ where he took away our sins. And this is how great a concern he has for each member of his church. This is how great a concern he has for each member of this church. This is how great a concern the Lord has for each of you. So look around the room. See that you do not despise any of these little ones. Crucial to the health of a church is valuing one another as the Father values us. A couple weeks ago, I met for lunch with some pastors in the area. Uh, We do do this monthly. We talk about all kinds of things, process things with each other. But one of them in, in lunch two weeks ago asks, asked me how we uh, deal with people who neglect to assemble with the church. And I was so encouraged as a pastor in that moment to say, our folks don't let that happen. You notice when each other are missing. You go after each other. I don't remember a time where we've had to confront somebody about neglecting to gather unless they had already jettisoned for other reasons. But all of you are caring for one another and those who are here are committed to each other. You care enough to pursue them and to keep them in the fold. It reminds me of the the care of our Father and how He pursues each one of us. So pray the Lord preserve such a spirit in our church. Pray that wherever we need further growth in this area, that God would help us. Look around. See who's missing. Make sure you're texting and calling and sending the email, and if you don't hear back, go into their house, right? 
finding ways to, to keep and preserve the little ones. Because God the Father loves them. And it's not His will that any perish. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your care for us and how You've demonstrated that care in Jesus. Uh, we thank You for His blood which takes away our sins and which then gathers us into one flock under one shepherd. I pray that You would help us to care for one another. That there would be an earnestness to our care and the and it would reflect the same earnestness in your own care for us. Lord, thank you for the people you've gathered here, for the members of this church. Thank you for the health you've already created, and I pray that you would improve it all the more. Lord, even as we come to the supper now, I ask that our hearts would be drawn once again to the faithfulness of our shepherd. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.